You're listening to Soul Roadmap, episode number four. Welcome to Soul Roadmap Podcast. Each week you'll hear strategies and inspiration to take action and live life better. Hi, I'm Dina Cataldo, lawyer, coach, and entrepreneur. This podcast is your roadmap to creating more success in your life, business, and relationships. Let's get started. Today, you're going to hear from an inspiring actress, storyteller, transformational coach, and the subject of an award-winning short documentary. Before I tell you more about our guest, I want to tell you about something that transformed my life and makes every single day better. And I'm giving you my secret for free. That secret something I'm talking about is a morning ritual. I created a morning ritual roadmap that will walk you step by step to create your very own morning routine. I didn't always used to be a morning person. I used to wake up hit snooze about 15 times, roll out of bed, take a shower, and run out the door. And let me tell you, that is not a way to start your day right. When I discovered that that was what was hurting me, what was making my day difficult, I changed my routine up. And when I did, I discovered that there was an entirely different way to live. So I created something that will help you create the routine that will make your life better. It includes a morning tracker that lasts two weeks so you can start to make improvements and track your changes. You can get it at dinacataldo.com forward slash morning roadmap. All right, now on to our guest. Leanna Strelkov is a transformational coach, a storyteller, and a speaker dedicated to advancing how we respond to challenges. A lifelong dancer paralyzed in a hiking accident, she recognized that she transformed her life through this challenge. She's been featured in the LA Times and NPR and has acted alongside Jane Fonda, Marissa Tomei, and Rosario Dawson, among others. We talk about four natural instincts to challenges and why they simply don't work. She explains the biggest shifts in thinking we can make when we're faced with a challenge to create an opportunity to grow. We talk lawyering, faux positivity, the key to bliss, field of dreams, and more. There's truly something for everyone in this episode. If you've ever had anxiety, felt like a control freak, had trouble trusting, or maybe you felt like you were facing an insurmountable challenge, you're going to want to listen in. Let's get started. Well, hello. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing so well. Thank you. So happy to be here. I am glad that you are here with me. I really wanted to talk to you when I learned about your story, but not just about your story. It's about a transformation that I could resonate with um, from just kind of having like that moment in time that just happened to trigger this huge transformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's like falling through a portal. <laughs> it's like falling through a portal. So I want to just start off giving listeners an idea of, you know, before we started talking, I kind of, I kind of talked about our experiences, like yours with paralysis, mine with breast cancer is kind of like a footnote. And really what I see in the big scheme of things is this transformation that really happens um, when we are given this gift of awareness, whether or not (laughs) you get it um, in one way or another. 
And so can you kind of introduce yourself through that, um, that brief moment in time? That, that moment of the portal or the sort of the journey that led up to the portal? Why don't you start with the portal and then we're going to back up and explain exactly what was going on. Okay. So on October 4th, 2002, I was on a date. My friend Dean and I were hiking in the Malibu Hills in Charmley Park of Southern California. And I had done this a million times in my life, not the dating part, but the hiking part. I was raised um, in the outdoors. My father was a really avid, uh, you know, mountain man, kind of 1970s guy. I went backcountry backpacking for the first time when I was five. Um, I didn't sleep in a tent for the first time until I was in my 20s. It was, it was, you know, hardcore wilderness adventuring. So, and I, I never really left that behind. So when I got into my adulthood, I was the kind of person who hiked every weekend and was very, very active physically. So I was on this date and it was really hot in October. And we wandered into one of these oak groves looking for some shade. And there in the corner of this grove was this spectacular tree. And I had been climbing trees my whole life. And I knew instantly that this tree was perfect for that purpose. It had, you know, if I had to design a tree and put every branch in exactly the place I would need it to be, this tree was it. So um, as it so happens, I was feeling very, very anxious that morning, and I kept trying to find ways to calm myself down, trying to find ways to feel better. And when I saw this tree, I thought, well, surely I'm going to feel better in the arms of this tree. So I started climbing, and because it was so perfect and so easy, within seconds, I was 25 feet up. And Dean, my date, he started climbing, and then... Um, I found myself on this perch that was very spacious. I was standing almost perfectly vertical. My feet were balanced on two very thick branches and my left hand was resting lightly on a small branch behind my body, just, you know, sort of draped on this branch. And Dean started telling this really long joke and I was waiting for the punchline and I heard a loud crack. And that crack was like, a door opening. I knew instantly what was happening. The branch I'd been resting my hand on broke. I reached in front of me to see if there was anything I could grab. As soon as I realized there wasn't, I knew I was going to hit the ground. And there was nothing I could do. <laughs> there was no... um had no influence on this situation. And so I let myself fall out of the tree. Right through that portal that we were just talking about. How did it feel as you were falling? Oh, heavenly. Absolutely heavenly. So, you know, to just touch a little bit on who I had been before that, I was a very anxious person. Um, I, I had some trauma as a, as a really young child. My family had a very painful divorce that we all went through. And from the time I was eight on, I was desperately trying to make sure that bad things wouldn't happen to me. And I spent my life um, in my head trying to predict the future, trying to control the future 
to make decisions and take actions that were going to go how I wanted them to go and turn out the way I wanted them to turn out. And if I couldn't tell how it was going to turn out, well, then I didn't go in that direction. Um, so I was actually very paralyzed in my able-bodied life. And you could see that all over my life. I had relationships that um, I was actually great at getting into relationship, but I couldn't stay in relationship, you know, two to four years. And that was it for me. Either I would leave or they would leave. Um, my career, you know, I was a professional actor, but I was making $300 a year as an actor. So, so not living off of that. Uh, yeah, no, not even close. Um, you know, I was well-respected and I was, I was a co-founder of a well-respected theater company in LA, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't really get a career off the ground. Um, I had a lot of, uh, depression my whole life in and out of these sort of chronic depressions. I just was struggling in so many ways and I was really hungry for surrender. And so when I realized, you know, when I heard the crack and I realized there was nothing I could do, it was like an invitation. Like, this is what you've been asking for. This is this, this moment. And it's so easy to surrender when you know you don't have any influence over a situation. When it's hard is when you're not sure. Like, do, you know, if I work this extra bit harder, will I have a better outcome? That's when it's hard to surrender. And we want to push those edges. We want to, we want to try to make it go our way or, you know, make it be as good as possible. But I knew there was nothing I could do. I was going to hit the ground. And once I surrendered, it, uh, it was immediate bliss. I dropped into slow motion. I felt peace like I'd never felt in my life. I had time to notice everything. I had time to notice the shape of my body in space. I had time to notice that I was in slow motion and that film and television had gotten it right. I had time to notice the branches and the leaves that I was near. I had time to notice how peaceful I felt. And I, I really knew sort of right from the start, like this is a different place. This is somewhere you've never been before. You're going somewhere new. And it was heaven. It was pure heaven. Mm. There's so many obvious questions that I could ask. <laughs> and you've spent quite a few years now working within a... Um, you know, coaching area, uh, also working as an actress, uh, speaking tours in which you really describe your journey. And part of what really interested me was how you found the space after the fall to create a new life. That's an interesting question, how I found the space. Um, so I'm hanging in the air and I have no sense that I'm getting any closer to the ground because I'm falling backward and I can't see it. So it feels literally like I'm suspended and I'm in this blissed out state. I'm a hundred percent present. I'm, I'm certain that that's the key to that, to that bliss. Um, perfect presence brings about that bliss sensation. It's very difficult in the real world to be perfectly present. Um, so that was a great lesson for me. And then the ground shot up and hit me 
And I never lost consciousness. I, it didn't even knock the wind out of me, which still to this day blows my mind. Um, but I couldn't, uh, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk because I couldn't get enough air in. I was in tremendous pain when I tried to breathe and I couldn't, I couldn't tell where my legs were. I had the, the body sensation of them being in a particular place, but I could see with my eyes that they weren't there. And I had no idea where they were. I could not see them. And so, even when it started to get really gnarly, you know, like here I am on the ground and I can't breathe and I can't breathe because I've collapsed a lung. And we're calling 911 and Dean has to leave me by myself in the dirt because he's got to meet the paramedics at the trailhead. We aren't on the trail. So he has to bring them to us. They need to be let in. And I'm by myself and I start to hear a voice in my head. And it's my own voice. And it starts to tell me things that I need to know. And the first thing that it tells me is everything you need to know is happening right now. Hmm. And I, I immediately understand that, okay, if I'm going to get through this, the information is right here. It's, it's in the present moment. So of course I start scanning immediately what's happening right now. And I, I realize, okay, surrender is clearly happening. Presence is clearly happening and faith. And the voice says to me, that's the way home. What was that faith in? Well, there is definitely a sense of, um, this was a profoundly spiritual experience, the fall itself, the time in the air. So there is, it's my faith in spirit and something bigger than me that I've, you know, I've had a very deep relationship with spirit for probably 20 years predating the fall. So it's faith in that relationship, but it's also faith in the journey. Like it's so clear to me that I have embarked on some kind of like, this is not Kansas anymore. You know, we have landed in Oz and, and we are now starting this journey. And my own wisdom is saying to me, you have to have faith in this journey. Like you are here now and it means something that you are here. So pay attention. Because it's going to be teaching you. It's going to be showing you. That's pretty profound to have that realization in, in such a compact moment. And, yeah. <laughs> and immediately, you know, it's not something I came to after three months of suffering, you know, in pain and, and sadness about it was, it was like, it was the first thing. It was the first thing I got. I have to say that was not the answer I was expecting <laughs> simply because you know, I'm, I'm colored by my own experiences with that kind of thing. It took a lot longer for me to get some things. Um, but to have it just so clear in that moment, um, that is pretty freaking amazing. It was amazing for me while it was happening, because believe me, I never would have guessed that anything, you know, I wasn't having an experience that was like, oh yeah, of course, this is how it would go. I, I was having an experience that was so radically different from anything else I had ever experienced. You know, do you, do you, did you ever see the movie Field of Dreams? Oh yeah. I love that movie. Okay. So, you know, at the end, after he's built the field and everybody's come to see it and the ball players all come out of the, out of the corn and they play their game. And at the end, they want to take somebody back with them. And of course, Kevin Costner's character is like, me, 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 take me, take me. Right. <laughs> and the players say, no, we're taking the writer. 
we're taking James Earl Jones because when he gets back, he's going to be able to tell you what he saw. And I felt like that's what happened to me. Like I got handed this experience because I had this set of skills and experiences and talents and, and education. I had these tools already in place and I was going to be able to tell people about this journey. I was going to be able to tell them what happened. I was going to be able to give them something. So I got handed this right from the beginning. So I want to ask you what was going on in your life prior to this, this realization, um, because I've listened to some of your other interviews and I know that prior to, um, the fall, there was a car collision. Can you describe, um, that collision and what was going on in your life at that time? Yeah. Oh, my life was really, it was such a mess. Um, so in the summer of that year, I, um, I, I went through a breakup. I had been in a long-term relationship with someone that I loved very, very deeply that I had actually been in and out of relationship with for 15, 16, 17 years, something like that. We had lived together three times over. We, you know, we, oh, we kept trying. And, um, we finally, he left and, and I had to leave the home that we shared and it was huge. And I knew that this was it. We weren't doing this again. It was really, truly over. And it felt like my whole world was about to dissolve. And I really hated that feeling. I didn't want to have that experience. I knew that I couldn't save this relationship, but I was not going to allow my life to be destroyed or dissolved by this. And so I sort of jumped into, um, you know, if you think about a caterpillar, so a caterpillar goes into the cocoon, right? And what does it do? It dissolves. That's what it has to do. It has to cellularly rearrange before it can form wings. I used to think that wings just grew on the body of the caterpillar. That is so not what happens. There's this very messy, probably terrifying thing that happens inside the cocoon. And for me, after that breakup, I was like, oh, I'm so not going down that path. We're just jumping right to butterfly. You know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be badass. We're just skipping all that ugly, painful stuff. <laughs> so, um, you know, because I have control over all things in my life. Of course. Yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I started dating Dean. I had already known him for a couple of years. He was in, um, he was another co-founder of the theater company. So we were, we were good friends. I started dating him. And one night, our theater company had a fundraiser, had a party in West Hollywood. And so at the end of the night, it was very late. It was like 2.30 in the morning. We were um, packing up the club where we had had this party. And I had some stuff that I was going to take home. And I went out. I, I went out to the front, you know, to the street in front of the club. And I went out into the street to put something on the driver's side of my car. And as I was standing there next to my car, I felt something brush by my hip. And it took me a few seconds to figure out what it was, but it finally dawned on me that it was the side mirror of the car that had just passed me. And I had this really unnerving, like, oh my God, I just, I was just inches away from being hit 
by a car as a pedestrian. And I, and I sort of in this shocky kind of state, put the stuff in the car and stumbled back up to the sidewalk. And Dean came out of the club and he saw my face and he said, my God, what happened? And I told him and I, I just was like, Oh, this is bad. And I had this feeling like the universe was sort of tapping my shoulder. Like, Hey, you know, we need to talk. And I hated that feeling. And so I just said, nope, we're not having that conversation. And I brushed off my hip like nothing had happened. And I got in my car and I started driving home. And about 10 minutes later, I was at the intersection of Pico and Crescent Heights in, uh, in Los Angeles. And I was, I was driving through the intersection and a woman made a left turn and she slammed into the front of my car and totaled my car. And the two together, those two experiences, not 10 minutes apart, left me feeling so destabilized and shaky. And for the next 24 hours, I tried to convince myself that they were not meaningful. You know, that coincidences happen, weird things happen, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Like, I really wanted to believe that. It's counter to my belief system, but I really wanted to believe it. And about 24 hours later, I just could not shake the feeling that, you know, God or goddess, as I typically refer to it, was trying to talk to me, you know, was talking right at me. And so I remember I went to bed the next night and I lay in bed and I said, okay, I hear you, but I don't know what you mean. So maybe you could send me, you know, another signal. And I'll try again to figure out what you're trying to say. Five days later, I fell out of a tree. I knew this was my opportunity. Dina, I was so tired. You know, I was 33 years old when I heard the crack. And I had spent virtually all of those years trying with my own bare hands to manage every outcome of my life. I was exhausted. I was like bitterly alone. I had a million people around me. I've always been popular. I've always had a lot of friends. I've always been admired and well-respected. But I felt like I had the whole world on my shoulders and that I didn't know how to do it any other way. I was so tired. Despite having that huge support, I'm curious to know were you the kind of person who felt you had to go it alone, that you had to be completely self-sufficient? I think not in the typical way. Like if I, I, I have sisters, I have older sisters who went through my family's demise <laughs> along with me. And I have one sister who I think did come out with that, like, hey, I can't count on anybody else. So I'm going to count on me. And I think it's, it served her pretty well. For me, it was more, I was so young. It was more that I didn't know how to let anybody in. So, I mean, I can remember so clearly in, you know, say junior high, feeling so lonely. I had a, I had a million friends around me, but I, the feeling of loneliness was like this I can bring it up right now, that pit in my stomach. 
because I didn't know how. I didn't have the skills. I had to teach myself that through my 20s. So it wasn't so much that I felt like I had to do it alone. It was that I, I couldn't figure out any other way. You mentioned that you had this feeling of being anxious, mm-hmm. like up until this point, this feeling of anxiety. And it, it sounded as if it was connected with this feeling that you did have to have your hand in everything, that you did have to attempt to control everything. Yes. Did you, have you ever figured out like where that came from? Like, oh, why yeah. you felt that? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, my, when I was three, my father left us and, um, uh, completely out of the blue. He just said he was leaving and he pulled three crying girls off his body and he walked out the door, got in the car and drove away. And I didn't see him or talk to him for a month. He's disappeared from my life. And then he came back. He didn't come back to the family, but he didn't want to leave us, the girls. And so he was in my life after that, but it was such a mess. And there were several other incidents after that where he just made these extraordinarily bad decisions and our situation kept going from bad to worse. Um, and I didn't trust life. I didn't trust life to deliver good things. I didn't trust good things to stay. I didn't trust that I was enough. I felt deeply, deeply flawed that I was somehow born that way and that if people knew, they would for sure not love me anymore. I would for sure be abandoned. Um, I was always trying to hide what felt to me like this creeping stain inside my body. I just, I had no faith in, in life. <laughs> and that faith that you're describing, that lack of faith. Mm-hmm. Did you regain it during your fall or was that something that you had slowly been regaining over time? It was definitely something I had been working on over time, um, but I struggled with it a lot. I would have moments of it where I felt like, okay, life is my friend, but I could not live there for sure. It wasn't until after I fell that I started really truly to live there i mean it's that certainly got challenged you know there's boy there's there's nothing that makes you feel insecure like you know being paralyzed now you know (laughs) your whole world changes it's so complicated i mean you have no idea paralysis is so complicated well we should mention because we have not talked about this is you know especially you were a dancer that was something that you closely identified with so i i mean if you closely identify with anything and that's a source of joy for you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you found joy in other ways, even though this was, you know, a big love of your life, dancing? Yeah, that that was definitely a really difficult one. I had been a lifelong dancer. Um, and it, it was, I like to say that, you know, it was so much more than joy because for me, it was church. It was therapy. It was, um, the most quintessential self-expression. Like to dance was to be perfectly myself. And so when I didn't have them, and I remember laying on the ground under the tree and saying to Dean, how am I going to live if I can, can't move? Like I couldn't compute that those two things could go together. But right from the beginning, you know, 
one of the things about the approach that I've developed and that I now teach is that the truth is a really big place. That's one of the precepts of what I call the Shiro's way. The truth is a really big place. And if we can learn to hold a very big and contradictory truth, we open a door to joy and beauty and grace, even when things are really hard. We don't have to get through the hard part in order to get to joy or beauty or grace. They actually coexist. And so for me, you know, that there was joy while I was laying on the ground under the tree waiting for the paramedics. There was already joy. It wasn't with me every second. It's not like I wasn't terrified. It's not like I didn't grieve horribly. But even in that grief, there was this connection with spirit, with source that felt incredible. There was, um, there was all this vision and wisdom that was, that was coming so fast. I could barely keep up with it. That was a source of joy. I think that my capacity for joy expanded. The type of things that brought me joy expanded. And I never gave up dancing. I, continue to dance from my chair. Um, it's a really different experience. I, I miss dancing with my whole body for sure. You know, they're, they're still 16 years later. I still really miss it, but I have had some of the best dances of my life from my chair for sure. One of the things that I've heard you say is that every challenge that we face is the opportunity to become more than we've been before. No matter what that challenge is, how do you deal with an obstacle that seems so difficult to overcome. Uh, how do you coach them? Um, so the first thing is that we shift the focus. It's no longer about overcoming it. The first thing that had to happen for me in order to make this extraordinary transformation available to me was I had to enter into a relationship with paralysis. I had to stop fighting it. I had to stop trying to beat it. I had to get curious about it. It was no longer an adversarial relationship. It was a dance. I didn't have to like it. I didn't have to like somehow manufacture some kind of gratitude for it, especially false gratitude, which I'm hugely opposed to. Um, but I did have to get curious, like, okay, you're here now. Who are you? And what do you have for me? Which is very different than giving up. It's very different than just laying down and saying, okay, well, you're here now. That's it. Nothing I can do about that. I still, I was here. I had my own opinions. I had my own desires. But paralysis was here too. So when I coach people, the first thing, one of the first things that has to happen is a, a reframing of the situation. Now that doesn't mean that if, for instance, you have cancer, it means you can't beat your cancer. But we have to shift away from this adversarial stance in order to open that door, open the door of possibility that we can become more. Because the situation that we're in is actually the teacher. One of the 
things that really helped me when I was trying to move through, you know, my diagnosis, it's, it's been years, but, um, it took, it took a lot of being quiet with myself. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I, I love music. And so listening to music and just sitting with it, that was something that helped me. Writing really helped me. And for me personally, yoga helped me. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, a lot of people who are listening are people who they can't get into their minds unless they get into their bodies. Oh, I'm so like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you I know totally I mean? get that. Yeah, sure. So like, is are there any other tools that you would offer someone who is trying to kind of navigate this obstacle, something that's going on in their life like that, uh, that would help them? Okay. Yes. Very, there's many actually. Um, so some starting places are, so first of all, this core premise that every challenge we face is an opportunity to become more than we were. You don't actually have to believe that. You don't have to buy in. You only have to be open to the possibility that that's true. So whatever situation you're facing, if you can be open to the possibility that that situation is an opportunity to become more than you've been, you can get curious about that. Like, hmm, how could that be? What might be here for me? And then beyond that, like for me, I did a tremendous amount of writing. I remember when I was in the hospital, especially because I, you know, my previous best tool for processing anything was movement. And here I was in a situation where I couldn't move two thirds of my body. So I, I had to write, um, creative expression in general. So in the beginning, it was journaling. It was hearing this voice and having conversations with it on the page. But later it was about storytelling. It was about creating, um, in a sense, something beautiful, creating beauty out of this experience. Even though I was also telling the truth, I wasn't sugarcoating anything. But I needed to create something. I would write poems. I, I ended up writing a full-length one-woman show that, you know, I toured that show. I did five national tours of that show. So um, creative expression, whether that is painting the moments of your experience, whether that is um, planting a garden that represents your experience, cooking um, cooking meals, some giving it some form of expression outside of your own head Mm. is a super important tool. And the other one is, is a mindfulness practice. Um, Some of your past episodes talking about meditation and the role of meditation. And in my experience, part of what I teach is that we need to be able to simultaneously be having an experience and observing that experience so that we can get just a little bit of distance so we're not snowed under with with every emotion that we have or every every event that takes place or every conversation we have with the doctor or every conversation we have with the spouse we're divorcing from we don't want to get snowed under by that okay i got a question for you because i i love hearing different people's takes on teaching simple meditations for people because i think one way that one teacher teaches someone is going to resonate with them more than another. And anyone who's not currently meditating, mm-hmm. I would love to hear your, the way you would approach 
you know, guiding them into like a, a small meditation practice. Can you kind of tell us how you do that? Yeah, what I start with, with pure mindfulness. Just notice. Notice how you feel in a moment. Notice what's going on. That's the practice. Meditation, meditation practices build that muscle, that mindfulness muscle. All I care about is that you build this muscle where you're noticing how you feel. You're noticing what's happening. That's what happened for me when I was laying on the ground. That voice said, pay attention. So if I say to you, we need to build the mindfulness muscle and everything in your body goes, oh, for God's sakes, meditation, how boring. I just want you to notice that. We don't need to judge that. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to change your reaction. I don't have a problem with your reaction. I don't want you to have a problem with your reaction. I just want you to notice that's what happened when I said the word mindfulness or I said the word meditation. That's all I want from you. I just want you to notice because that's the, that's the one important piece. I freaking love that. I think I'm going to ask that every time I have someone on the show <laughs> who does anything with meditation. Cause you know, if it doesn't click with you one way, maybe someone else is going to say something that's going to make it click. And I am all about getting more people meditating. Yeah. I have noticed that as I've been listening to the episodes, I was like, Oh yeah, she's definitely on board here. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I have to say, so much of your story resonates with me because I had a, a very much that feeling of anxiety for different reasons, but I could definitely see it in my nature. Uh, you know, the more you work, the, you know, the more you work, <laughs> you know, like the, and that, that created a lot of anxiety and the, you know, job I have is one where you have to be in control all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, that kind of seeps into your pores. Mm-hmm. And if you're not aware of it and you're not taking the time to have a mindfulness practice of some sort, you're, it could just take over your life. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, yeah. And recently I've, I felt really strong about my practice and I noticed a huge difference. So I'm, I'm all about that. Um, one, <laughs> wait, wait, before, before you go on, oh, yeah. I want to say one thing about that because you just, um, I'm imagining this. I'm, 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 um, I'm invoking my inner attorney yeah, and like trying to imagine what that, what that world is like. I thought for a long time I was going to go to law school. So I actually, my mind, and when I did my undergrad, I have my graduate degrees in human development. But um, when I went to undergrad, I have a, a degree in theater and performance, but my minor is pre-law. So I, I thought for a long time I was going to go down that road. So if I, if I invoke that part of me and I sort of look around inside my body for that, I can totally feel like, yeah, absolutely. You have to be what you said is in control. And here's, here's what I say to that. I have learned that there is a huge difference between being in control and being in command. Oh, yeah. I like that. And my life, I am, I strive to always be in command. Ooh. I am virtually never in control. I like that. I'm going to use that. I hope you do because there <laughs> are, there are, I mean, think about like, just take any day, take today, take yesterday. There are a million things that are out of your control. Like essentially every single person you deal with, 
you know, whether they work for you or they're on the opposite side of the aisle, whatever, like we don't have any control over anybody else. We just don't. I don't have any control over the way the traffic lights are scheduled. There's a million things I cannot control, but I get to be in command of me in every single one of those situations. I love that reframe. That was beautiful. I'm totally using that. (laughs) (laughs) And this mindfulness practice allows for that because if you don't have that, then you're just reactive. Yeah. If you can't, if you don't have any distance between you and what's going on, then, then we just react and we are no longer in command. Now our situation has the power. Our situation is in command of us or the people that are around us are in command of us. So that mindfulness piece is so important just to get a little bit of space. So we have time to say, how do I want to respond to this? Who do I want to be in this moment? Mm. Juicy, right? Love that. <laughs> I wanted to hit on something that you mentioned and I'm totally on board with this. In fact, thinking about this makes me a little anxious. It's the overly positive. Let's be uh, so positive all the time. Blah. I mean, I'm about positivity. I'm a positive person. Mm-hmm. I go in the office. Hey guys, how's it going? I'm happy. You know, that, and none of that's fake. But if I don't feel good and I walk in, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to have that overtly positive vibe because that's just not how I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, so can you kind of touch on that and some of the um, reaction or feelings that you might have about that kind of overtly positive, faux positive world? Oh, yeah. I got lots of feelings about this. In fact, I have a gift for your listeners. Um, and I, I know you're going to put the link in the, in the notes. Um, it's a story that I recorded called Death by Positivity. That's all about this. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So yeah, I am a firm believer that forced gratitude and forced positivity is absolutely making things worse for us. That you have to begin where you are. It's like me trying to jump past that caterpillar phase when my relationship broke up. The only place you can begin from, begin anything, is right where you're standing. It's not possible to begin from somewhere else. And so when we force ourselves into gratitude or we force ourselves into positivity, what we've done is we've removed ourselves from the actual place that we inhabit and try to project ourselves into some other spot. And it is simply impossible. It does not work. So what I have found is that, and it, and it, there's a whole host of other problems that come with it. It does, it's not just that it doesn't work. It actually gets in the way. It makes hard stuff last longer. It cuts us off from support that we might really desperately need in that moment. It's so bad for us. So what I teach is that you have to tell the truth first. You have to be truthful with yourself. You have to say, this is what's really happening. That doesn't mean you have to collapse into it. It doesn't mean you have to sacrifice your whole day to it. It doesn't mean you have to um, not meet your commitments. You always act in honor of your commitments, not in honor of your emotions. But you have to tell yourself the truth and you start from there. And then you can make choices. 
you can decide, all right, I've been with this and I need to move on. I need to get some other things done. And I'm going to go do those things without cutting a piece of you off. It's like leaving your arm in the other room. How do you expect to feel if you've done that? Well, how you're going to feel is that you're missing an arm. And that arm, you're, first of all, part of your attention is always like, geez, I don't have a left arm. This feels really weird. I don't have a left arm. Where's my left arm? Oh, right. I left it back in that other room. No, 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 no. I'm not going to look over there. going to just try to function over here without my left arm. It's like it calls to you. So now we're super distracted. We're totally inauthentic. I mean, the doors are just closing. It's just, we're just getting smaller, smaller, smaller. We're just contracting. You got to start with what's true and then make choices about what you're going to do with that, how you're going to respond in that moment. Mm, I love that too. There's, there's something about also finding that thing that helps you be in the moment Mm. that helps you like that's for me, podcasting is part of that because Mm. me having a conversation with you, I'm here. And then, I mean, I'll notice my thoughts every so often. Maybe they'll wander, but it's immediate come back. Mm-hmm. And it's not like that with every activity I do. Mm-hmm. Your brain just kind of has a mind of its own. It goes down little paths and all that. But there's something very immediate for this. There's something very immediate to, you know, one-on-one coaching. Mm-hmm. There's, there's certain things, trial work. You have to be mm-hmm. in the moment. I'll bet. I mean, it's, there's certain activities that bring that and to find those activities, whatever they might be, maybe it's painting for someone else or writing for someone else or singing for someone else, finding those things that help you practice that presence, I believe helps over time overall in your whole life. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think for me, those, as you were talking, I was like, geez, I wonder what those are for me because I'm sure I have them. Um, you know, I know that being with an audience of any kind, you know, telling these stories, answering these kinds of questions, um, that is definitely a, a, uh, it's almost like, what's the word I want? Like fine tuning. You know, it's, it brings me into sort of the proper resonance. If my frequency is kind of fuzzy on the edges or kind of all over the dial, as soon as I start to talk about this, even if the audience is you, it's you and me, you know, (laughs) we're just imagining in this moment the other people that might be listening at some future date. But in this moment, it's me and you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's totally enough. It's I don't need more than that. So that definitely brings me into sort of proper alignment. And that's how I interpret when you say presence, like brings you into the present moment. For me, that's about alignment. Mm, Yeah. If I'm on my own, I notice just breathing. Because I'm one of those people you mentioned earlier who I I need my body to be involved. I can't. I'm dangerous if it's just me up inside (laughs) my head. You know, That's, that's a bad news place. All kinds of crazy things go on up there. So, um, and I'm smart and that's kind of a problem sometimes. I'm certain you know about this. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough being smart like us. I mean, it it can be. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say anything to the listeners. I mean, we don't want anyone else to hear this, but it's tough. It's hard work. that's, That's the thing. You have a big brain that likes to make all sorts of connections and wants to say, oh, no, 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 this is the way it is. Let me tell you how it is. You know, and my brain is just wrong a lot. A lot of the time, my brain is wrong. Well, to kind of go off, okay, we're going to go off just a 
a smidge. So, you know, when that voice is coming into our head, it's that ego, right? It's like telling us something that, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not necessarily true what you're telling me. And it's having that presence, having that ability to have space to recognize that that voice is lying to us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, that voice usually has evidence that it can point to. It can say, oh, but remember this time when blah, blah, blah happened, which doesn't make it any more true. It just makes it sound more true. Right. It may not even really be related, but it just has enough of a grain of truth. <laughs> that's like, right. Oh, that's yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. We, um, there was something that you wanted to talk about and you can decide if you, if you want to include this or not. The instinctual responses. Is that still of interest to you? The which responses? The instinctual responses to, to change, challenge and adversity. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> let's talk about that. Um, so we've already touched a little bit on the antidote to what we naturally do. We haven't talked much about what naturally happens. So yes. we have, um, when we find ourselves in a difficult situation and it absolutely does not matter the type of difficult situation. It can be relationship based. It can be work. It can be money. It can be health. Um, it can be mental health. It can be, uh, just feeling lost. You know, I, like I felt like that for, I don't know, 20 years or something, I felt like I just couldn't really find my way or I didn't know what I was doing as sort of chronically dissatisfied. Um, Any of these situations, it can be acute, it can be chronic, it can be low level or intense. We have four natural instincts that we humans play out. Um, And we don't do just one of these, you know, we can have a given situation and do more than one of them. So one of those natural instincts is to deny what's happening. This is not a problem. I know it feels like a problem and it looks like a problem, but it's not a problem. We all know that that doesn't work real well. I don't have to tell anybody that. That's not news. Um, another really instinctual response is to avoid the problem. So I'm having this problem with a friend. I feel really awkward every time I talk to her. So I'm just not going to call her anymore. I'm, I'm just, you know, we're, we're just, Whatever. Oh, we've all done that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? Totally. You know, you're having a problem with a coworker. You just kind of try to avoid them or, you know, whatever it is. Or you do some combination of avoid and deny. And you have to be there. You deny that there's a problem, but then you just try not to be there the rest of the time. Oh, we're so brilliant at these things. So, and I think it's probably, I probably don't have to tell people why avoiding doesn't work. Situations just get worse. They just fester. You know, it's, it's not a functional way to approach a challenge. Here are the two that, that are really tricky. So one is to fight. Another instinctual response is to fight. Beat it or get beaten by it. That's a common, um, especially for Americans, I think. We, oh, you don't think it's different between Americans and other? I don't think, I think that this exists in many, many other cultures. But, um, you know, we Americans, boy, we really dig our, our sort of independent frontiersmen, you know, out there taming the Wild West kind of thing. I mean, I love John Wayne movies, so I see nothing wrong with that. So, so <laughs> here's, here's the issue there. Sometimes the fight really works. 
really works, gets us what we want, gets us through a situation. Here's what happens. So sometimes that, first of all, it's not going to work. Okay. But let's deal with when it does. It's very tiring. Um, not everybody has the personality for that. You know, we type A's are pretty good at that. Not everybody has sort of the constitution to put on the boxing gloves and get in the ring with their challenge. And what happens if we win, we get hit by another challenge. How much reserve do we have to take on the next one or the next one? Or what if the fight we're in is chronic? What if it's not eatable? It's something that is going to, it's like paralysis. It's going to be with me. You know, I mean, who knows where technology and science is going to go, but there's a damn good chance this is going to be with me for the rest of my life. So how do I maintain that fight for the next 40 years? Okay, so that's, that's the problem with the fight. The fourth instinctual response is just sort of put your head down and kind of bear it until it's over. And it has the same problems as the fight. Sometimes it works because sometimes time delivers us from our challenges, even when we've done nothing. If you just wait it out long enough, things shift and we get delivered from that cocoon. How would that be different than avoidance? Well, I think avoidance is more like, um, I'm just not going to deal with this. Like I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to walk the other way. It's like that coworker, you know, I'm, I'm just going to try to avoid having to work on projects with that coworker as opposed to I'm in this project with this coworker and I'm just going to suck it up and be there and be miserable until the project is over. But the same issue. So the project will end eventually and hopefully you won't have to work with that person again. But what happens if you do have to work with that person again? Or what happens when the next person comes and that one is a challenge? Well, you got through that one at work and now you go home and your teenager is doing crazy things. We're so tired. These ways of handling things are extremely hard to sustain. And the fact is, challenge is pretty common in life. And that that's not a pessimistic like, oh, life is terrible and horrible things are going to come all the time. It's just, you know, we share life with a lot of people and a lot of different circumstances that are out of our control. That means we're going to get challenged. Change is inevitable. Change is challenging. Well, we talked about how that could be transformed into kind of like an acceptance of sorts. Into a relationship. So here I am in the presence of this difficult situation. I don't like it. feels crappy. What does it have for me? Get curious. That's the biggest shift. Get curious. Somebody said something to the effect of, I think it's Tony Robbins. He says, the quality of our life is measured by the quality of our questions. Oh, I absolutely 100% agree with that. 100%. Something that I often say to people is that it is not the, the quality of your challenge that dictates whether or not you will benefit. What dictates whether or not you benefit is the relationship you're having with the challenge that exists. That's where, that's what says how much and if you're going to benefit from this situation and that you have command over. I would love it if you would tell listeners how they can learn more about you and where they can contact you. I'm going to link to any links that you mention in the show notes so nobody has to rush to write this down. It'll all be there. 
So yeah, tell us, tell us where they can contact you. Absolutely. You can certainly find me on my website at lianastrelkoff.com. We will for sure give you a link because I don't want to torture anyone trying to figure out how to spell my name. Um, uh, lots of information there. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. And if you do hop over to the website, um, oh, actually, I know we're going to give you a separate link for that gift. You don't need to visit the website for that. And then I think we're also going to link to some videos. Um, there's a bunch of stuff on YouTube too that check out. Yes, there's some some fabulous things that I stumbled upon and uh you know, Leanna's done like a Sue talk. There was a talk that gets super honest and super real about what it's like living with paralysis. And you know, there there are questions that would be super rude to ask anybody if you're walking down the street. <laughs> so don't do it. But she's answered all those questions for you, and you can find them at that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe we'll even link to, because um, we were talking about dancing. They're mine and my, you know, I ended up marrying Dean. Thank um, you. I, I wanted to circle around back to that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Dean and I stayed together, and uh, let's see, we got married about four years after I fell. And I think three years after, three or four years after we got married, I gave birth to our son. So we're now all three of us. Uh, our son is seven now. He's fabulous. And on YouTube, there is actually mine and Dean's wedding dance. Oh, um, yeah. We're going to link to that too. Yeah. That, that was a big deal for me. That was one of the, uh, that was a hard loss because I, you know, you, you hear these stories about girls who dreamt of their wedding dress their whole life or, um, I heard one story about a girl who was always dreaming about her cake, the kind of cake she was going to have, which I think is adorable. For me, it was the wedding dance. I had been choreographing that dance. I mean, for years, years and years, choreographing, re-choreographing is, it was such a big deal. And so when I was, um, approaching my own wedding, uh, that was really, really important to me. And Dean and I ended up working with a choreographer just to get a basic uh, movement vocabulary in terms of how we could react, you know, react to each other and respond to each other. What's a movement vocabulary? Movement vocabulary. So uh, in the dance world, um, choreography is, is built on phrases of movements, one movement that flows into the next. And each piece of that phrase is like a word. Huh. So um, a movement vocabulary would be m moves things that you do with your body that you can mix and match in different sequences to create a dance. So if you moved in one way, it would be telling the other person to move in another way? Not necessarily, but we we had to explore, like, first of all, Tina's is really tall. He's 6'5". Oh, wow. And so you have this very tall, able-bodied, on-his-feet person. And then not only do you have wheels, but I'm much lower than him because I'm sitting <laughs> down. So th these are um, small complications in the in the movement world, and so we worked on, um, you know, how could he move around me and not get tripped up on the chair, or how could I spin and manage my hands and not lose contact with him, things like that, like the sort of the logistics of moving together. Wow. Yeah, it was super fun. We ended up improvising the dance for the most part. Um, and it's, it's fairly long. Like I knew right from the beginning the music that I wanted to use and it's fairly long. So there's a point 
There's a point where it gets very silly. It's very playful. It's a fantastic representation of our relationship. It's, it's everything that we are as a couple. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you're a joy. Oh, thank you. I'm thankful that, you know, we had an opportunity to talk because this was, this was wonderful. Oh, Dina, that's lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I've had a great time. It's been really fun to talk to you. Really fun. I had so much fun talking to Liana. Wasn't she a sweetie pie? I'm going to put everything that we talked about, all those links at dinacataldo.com forward slash episode four. You can get everything there. I'm also going to put a link there for the morning routine roadmap. And so you won't even have to look for it. It's going to be right there. dinacataldo.com forward slash episode four. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Soul Roadmap. If you have a moment, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe, rate, and left an honest review on iTunes. I read every single review. So let me know what you want to hear more or less of, and I'll talk to you next week.